wonderful to be back here and for people to be in the room. The last times I got to preach in this or to this church was one time I was on Zoom and that was pretty depressing. And then the next time it was the week before you came back to meeting in person. So there was like 20 people here with the sound team and everything like that. And so it's a, it's a joy to be here in a room full of people that love the Lord. Uh, our churches are sister churches. We are, or you guys like our, our mum church and we're the little, uh, the daughter church, but we, we're in close partnership and close friendship. You are constantly on our hearts, in our prayers. Um, as a pastoral team, two pastoral teams, we work together so closely. We're, we're close friends, co-laborers, uh, and so I'm just so grateful that I got to plant a church out of a wonderful church and in partnership with a wonderful church and that we... Even though we're separate, we're still really together. Uh, And may God keep blessing this local church and our local church and future local churches that will be planted out of both our local churches. Amen. Uh, We are going to dive straight into our topic today on singleness. Uh, We preached, uh, I preached a couple of months ago, a series called Sanctifying the Ordinary, the title I stole from Dave, which I think he stole from CJ in the US, Uh, and we were looking at different topics to sanctify, that's a Bible word for make holy. We looked at money, we looked at friendship, we looked at, I can't remember, work, different topics, Uh, but one topic I was keen to preach on was singleness. How do you be holy as a single? How do you take your status as a single? That's what it is. It's a status, not an identity. How do you take your status as a single and live for the glory of Christ? And as a church body, as has been mentioned many times already today, how do you as a church body work together with singles and marrieds and families all together? Well, as Christians, we know, if you know your Bible, you know that there's only two categories of statuses you can have. You can be a celibate single, so a single person not practicing any sexual activity, or you can be in a faithful marriage. It's not popular in our world to have those two distinct categories, but they're the categories that is God's best for us. And so there's likely many people, I know many singles, who are in this room. But as we talk about singleness, there are many different experiences uh, that different singles may have with that status. Some are mostly content with their call and status as a single. Some find it very, very difficult. Some are single by choice. Some are single but strongly desiring marriage. Some were previously married and now a single again. So how can you, and how can we as a church, take singleness as a gift from God and make it holy? I want to open God's Word for you, because God doesn't leave us in the dark on how to do this. We're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7 through 9. It's a long chapter, and I'm only going to focus on a small portion of it. But I believe it will really teach us how to live this vital part of our life for God's glory. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7 to 9. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the churches in Corinth, modern-day Greece, and he says this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, And one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single. 
as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, may you bless the reading and the preaching and the applying of your holy word to your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, singleness is a topic which is crucial for everyone in the church to understand what God's will is for it, not just the singles. This isn't just a separate session just for the singles because they need to figure out singleness. Singleness is a topic that we all need to understand. Why is that? Well, I've got a number of reasons that will help us all kind of join in on this journey on learning on singleness. Firstly, the scripture we just read is addressed to the whole church of Corinth. Therefore, it's God's will that all of us would think about singleness as a whole church. Secondly, as Brandon and has variously been mentioned, the church is a body. And we need to address every aspect of the body in their season, stage, and status. And even if it's not your particular status, you're called to particularly love singles in the church, and therefore you need a biblically informed understanding of what their calling and their role is in life so that you can best help them do that for the glory of God. Thirdly, because thinking on singleness can be very confusing in our day and age. We can kind of fall into, you know, two traps. Firstly, singleness can be seen as the worst thing ever. You just think singleness means loneliness, incompleteness. As one friend said to me, it's like a rotten cherry on a beautiful cake. That's how she felt as a single at times. The words like celibacy, chastity, abstinence aren't really like celebrated words in our culture. Especially if you are someone who struggles with same-sex attraction, singleness is God's calling for the rest of your life, potentially. Because our sexuality has been conflated with our identity as well, to suppress your sexual feeling as a single and your desires and your romantic longings is not just a biological suppression in our day and age, it's an identity suppression. It's a selfhood suppression. It's you. You're denying your very essence of yourself. And so it can feel like to be called to be abstinent and chaste and single is to deny your very self, which in turn is actually what Jesus said makes a follower of Christ. But in our day and age, that sounds like the worst thing ever. Sam Albury, in his excellent book, uh, Seven Myths About Singleness, which I bought a copy for all the singles in my church and all the life group leaders, so I reckon Dave should do the same. So if you want a copy of this book and you don't have it, Dave's going to buy it for you. I'm just going to put it out there. It's there. It's happened. Sorry, Dave, but there you go. Or you can steal it from Brendo's book budget. That'll be fine. (laughs) Sam Albury says this, in much of our thinking of singleness is downright bad, oh sorry, in much of our thinking, singleness, if not downright bad, is certainly not seen as good. Even the way we describe singleness reflects this. It's almost always defined in the negative, as the absence of something. It's the state of not being married. It's the absence of a significant other. This defining by negation reinforces their idea that there's nothing 
intrinsically good about singleness. It's merely the situation of lacking what is intrinsically good in marriage. And sometimes, married people, family members, perhaps you've experienced this if you're a single or at one time when you were single, can look down on singles. They can see singles as independent, selfish or immature. Uh, Particularly, that's how often sometimes we can see single men in the church. Why don't you grow up and get married? Marriage gets held up as a glorious, idyllic reality. And marriage is good. I love being married, and I wish my wife Maddie could be here, but she's home with sick kids. Marriage is good, but it has its problem. It's not the idyllic reality that we think it may be. So we might see singleness as the worst thing ever, or on the flip side, in our culture, and perhaps you might believe this as well, that singleness can be seen as the best thing ever. Freedom, sexual liberation, independence, do what you want, when you want. So then marriage is seen as a bad thing, stifling, chafing, restrictive, dangerous. And we don't want to flip to that way of thinking either. So clearly we need clear thinking on this issue. Not only this, but we need to be aware that not everyone in your church will marry. Some will remain single unto death. Singleness is not a season. We're heading into summer, we can feel the warmth coming in. Well, singleness isn't a season that may pass for some. It's a status that remains until you are married. Some will never marry. And this passage even suggests that some, maybe some shouldn't marry. And the other reality, the other reason why we all need to understand this, is that for everyone who is married, most likely 50% of you will all be single again one day. Sam Albury says this, Bereavement will return many who are married now to singleness again. It is sobering and sad to think about, but also necessary. Add to that the number of marriages that will end a divorce, and the proportion of those who will become single for a second time rises even higher. A ring on our finger now is no sure sign that we will not be single in the future. Better to think carefully and biblically about singleness now rather than later. Finally, it's a strange way of thinking about it, but all the children in the church are also single. And they will one day develop out of children, and you've got youth in your church into teenagers, and and they need to know how to think about their status as a single too. So let's gather around today as one body and sanctify singleness. Let's take this status and see how we can use it for the glory of Jesus Christ. And I've got three points to try and help us understand it today. The story of singleness, the gift of singleness, and then sanctifying singleness. But I've got, to quote Brendan, one hope. (laughs) Three main points, but one hope. Sorry, I just gave away the secret, if you hadn't noticed. That if you're single, you would receive and embrace your singleness as a gift from the Lord. And if you're married, that you would understand that singleness is a gift from the Lord. So let's jump in, though, to point number one and look at the story of singleness. Let's do a biblical theology of singleness so we can put it in context and understand where does singleness fit into the narrative of the whole 
Bible. We're going to trace the biblical narrative of marriage and singleness to give us perspective. So as you know, the Bible begins in the garden and God creates everything by the power of his word. And at the ultimate moment of his creation, he sets apart man and woman. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 to 28. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God's plan with creation was to fill the earth with images of himself, partaking in his divine nature to rule and to steward and to take gardens and make them into cities and to bring culture and to make his glory known as the water covers the sea across all the earth. That was God's plan. And the way in which he helps make that happen is he institutes marriage. He brings together male and female for the purpose of procreation uh, and pleasure and family as a safe way to literally fill the earth with images of himself to accomplish the task together. But then if you read on in Genesis 2, you'll notice that Genesis 2 is a, it's the creation story but from a slightly different perspective. And this time the writer tells us that God created this garden and he placed a man in the garden. Just the man was alone and he was given the job to tend the garden and protect the garden and care for the garden. So he's given the, the creation mandate in Genesis 2 alone, even though we know in Genesis 1 it was given to them both. But then there's a problem. Adam is alone. Look at Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, it can't be that Adam was lonely and needed company. He walked in the garden with God, after all. So I think he was doing just fine. It's more that Adam had a task to do the creation mandate, to fill the earth with images of God's glory. Therefore, he needed a helper for the task. And that's what marriage is. It's a a head of the home called to take dominion of the earth with a helper created by God to achieve that task for God's glory. Now, sadly, it all goes wrong and and the the marriage union is broken. The, The woman and the man, they sin against God and forever marriage and sexuality and gender is stained with a curse. All marriages and all relationships are hard after that moment. God promises that he will make relationships right again by crushing that Satan that got in there and mucked everything up. But until then, there's going to be disunity. And from here, you you leave the Garden of Eden and the rest of the Old Testament, babies are made, marriages are had, and bit by bit, they fill the creation mandate. They fill the earth with goodness, but they also fill the earth with evil. Most of the focus in the Old Testament is on marriage and family, particularly one main family, the family of Abraham, who had Isaac, Jacob, uh, then they called him Israel. And in all these families that come out of this one family, they're still called to do that one task, but it's fractured, it's broken. There's not much attention brought to singleness in the Old Testament. In fact, if anything, it's seen as a negative state. The barren, not bearing children, not contributing to the creation mandate. 
Jeremiah was called by God to be single, but it was as a sign of a curse he was putting on Israel. So that's not too encouraging. There was no Hebrew word uh, for a male bachelor. And so there's, in the Old Testament, it, it paints this picture that singleness is this sort of state that it, it is not quite fulfilling what God called us to do, but then appears Christ Jesus. And the picture starts to change radically. Jesus comes from heaven to be the second Adam, the greater Adam, the true image of God. But he comes as a single man. Jesus never dated, he never slept around, never married, contrary to the Da Vinci Code, and was the most godly, holy, and joyful person that ever lived. Jesus was truly God and truly man, totally single and completely fulfilled. And then Jesus, the greater Adam, goes to the cross so that he can crush that serpent that ruined everything in the first place, defeat the fall, pay for our sin, and rise from the dead. And anyone who believes in Jesus and looks to him as Lord and Savior, what's the promise of the Scriptures? John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So Jesus, the single man, through his work on the cross, bears spiritual children, creates a new family. Jesus fulfills the cultural mandate, the creation mandate to fill the earth through his substitutionary death on the cross and resurrection by making anyone who puts their faith in him his own child. Isaiah says he shall see his offspring. So he fills the earth with children, but not physical children, spiritual children. And then he tasks the church with a job. And he doesn't repeat the creation mandate, which God repeated to Noah after the flood. Instead, he changes it. He's fulfilled the creation mandate. And then he gives us the great commission. Look at Matthew, you know it, 28, 18 to 20. You most likely know it. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so now the task of the church is to fill the world with children of God. And to take dominion of the earth, not through power, not through politics, not through wealth, but through proclamation of the gospel and saving souls. This is really, really vital for us to understand that what was the physical race of Israel has now transferred. It was always spiritual, but there was a physical element, is now spiritual. Greg Morse, in an article on Desiring God, says it like this. The expansion plan of God's kingdom, the Old Testament, was through physical multiplication, something that excluded singles. Now, God's people march toward glory in the New Testament age through spiritual multiplication by disciple-making. The procreation mandate given to Adam is reissued through the coming of Christ, go forth and multiply spiritual children. 
And then, if you fast forward 20 years from Christ's resurrection, you meet a man called Paul, the greatest missionary ever. Dave's good, but he's not Paul. (laughs) And Paul was a single man who lived his whole life for the glory of Christ after being saved. And he made it his mission to go and fulfill this mandate to make new children of God through the proclamation of the gospel all over the known world. And though Paul was physically childless, he certainly was not lacking family. He repeatedly uses familial language to describe himself and the church. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. Timothy, my true child in the faith. To the Corinthians, he says, you've had countless guides, but you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He even says in Galatians 4.19, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. You see how in the new covenant, this reality becomes a spiritual reality and the family becomes a spiritual family. And even though a single man like Paul can now become a father and even have anguish of childbirth, (laughs) spiritual pregnancy pains. I'm not sure what pregnancy pains feel like. I won't pretend to try and illustrate that, but you ladies who've had babies, you know. So although he had no wife or children of his own, he had spiritual children. Now this reflects what Christ actually taught himself. Jesus was the one who instituted this. Mark 3. Everyone's saying, hey, your mom and and your brothers are outside. You should go to them. And Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about them, who sat around him, he said, to his disciples, those who are listening to him, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What was ancestral, what was through lineage, what was through procreation is now through Christ, a new spiritual family. And this is is glorious for us to understand as a church because it means that we all take part in each other's families and we all are one another, brother, sister, mother, father. Your, your kids are the singles' kids. And the <laughs> singles, you have family here that you may not have through childbirth. You have it spiritually. And Jesus said this to the disciples. He said, Truly I say to you in Mark 10, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now when in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life we share in one another now through jesus we're one spiritual family and so whether we're married or single single we're all called to fulfill the great commission together to bring the gospel to lost people so that they can become children of god a part of god's family and into the church a local expression of that spiritual family where singles and marrieds receive a new spiritual family. And then, to complete the story, in the end, Jesus teaches us that all marriages will fade away. 
They fulfilled their purpose here on earth as a good and safe place for the creation mandate and as a sign of the glorious gospel. And there'll only be one marriage in heaven. The marriage of the bride, the church, and the groom, Jesus Christ. And in one sense, we will all be single forever in heaven. And that will be good because that's God's sovereign plan. Because we will have Christ as our all in all. So that's that's the story of singleness. And I want to paint that canvas so then we can come into the particulars of what is this gift of singleness. And that leads to the second point, the gift of singleness. As I said at the beginning, if there's one key point I want you to take away, it's this. If you are single, to receive and embrace this as a gift. And if you're married, to understand that singleness is a gift. But what does that mean? So 1 Corinthians 7 is Paul's longest treatment of marriage and sexuality and singleness in the Bible. The Corinthians were a church that needed clarity, just like we do, about how to sanctify the ordinary parts of life. They wanted to know what it means to be married, single, divorced, widowed, and sexual, now that they were Christians. They were living in Rome after all. If you know anything about ancient Rome, they were no (laughs) prudes. Uh, Like in our day and every day in human history, uh, their sexuality was screwed up. And they needed answers. So they wrote to Paul with a bunch of questions. And basically in chapter 7, Paul's trying to answer each one of those questions. Questions like, I don't think it was the guys asking this, but maybe, should we still have sex or is that unspiritual? Should we get married or just abstain? If we're married to a non-Christian, should we get divorced? And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians 7. Now, obviously, I can't answer all those questions, but verses 7 to 9 help us focus in on the singleness question, and that's what we're tackling today. Let's read it again. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, this is not all that Paul has to say on marriage. It's just a way to cure sexual urges. There's much more. It's a glorious picture in Ephesians 5. There's more to it. But he's making a point. Paul's preference is that if you can be single, you should be single. It's good to remain single. The clear teaching of this passage is that singleness is a gift from God. It's a gift given to some, but also the flip side is that marriage is also a gift from God. Both singleness and marriage are a gift. Both are good, both come from God, both are hard and have their respective challenges and benefits. Now, let's clarify, when Paul says singleness is a gift and marriage is a gift, he's not talking about gift like speaking in tongues. Um, If you have the gift of speaking in tongues, you you can speak in tongues. If you don't have the gift of speaking in tongues, you can't speak in tongues. Uh, That's just how it works. It's sort of on or off. The gift of singleness is not like, well, some have the ability to be single, um, are just waiting to get married or not get married, but it's not like that. The gift of singleness is the gift of status. It's a status given 
to you for the glory of God. So if you are single here this morning, you have the gift of singleness. If you are married here this morning, you have the gift of marriage. It's a status given to you from God for His glory at this present time in your life. If your spouse dies, the gift of marriage is taken away from you and you receive the gift of singleness. If you get married, like, you know, Josh and Amy, uh, Josh. Wow. <laughs> Josh and Marcos. No! <laughs> wow. Amy and Marcos. Can we get that one out of the recording? That'll be good. Wow, that wasn't in the plan, but yeah. So Amy and Marcos are getting married, hopefully. They will, they're currently single. Okay, let's get back. They will lose the gift of singleness and gain the gift of marriage, hopefully next year. Now, both statuses are a gift for God's glory. But we've all been given unwanted gifts in our life. You know, it comes to Christmas time, and you know it's an unwanted gift uh, if you give it to someone, and they immediately start to justify how they're going to use it. So if you give them a gift and they say, oh, I could use this for like um, a doorstop or I could use it for, I mean, not a doorstop, I, I, I think I'll, yeah, I could make a recipe out of that at some point. You know it's not a very good gift because they can't just enjoy it. They have to justify it why they've got it. And it either gets re-gifted or taken to salvos. But friends, with the gift of singleness, we need to be very careful in how we think about it. God is Holy righteous, good, and sovereign. God doesn't give gifts out willy-nilly or by accident. He doesn't give you the gift of singleness because he doesn't really understand you and your needs and your desires. God has given you the gift of singleness by his sovereign plan. And the same is for the marrieds. We need to be careful that we don't demean the gift or think the giver is silly or stingy or somehow got it wrong. So how is singleness a gift? Paul shows it in two ways, negative and positive. So let's quickly look at the positive. Firstly, and we're going to have to go further on in the chapter to look at it, in the negative, he shows that by being single, this is the one gift of the status of singleness, by being single, you are spared the hardship of marriage. Look at verse 25 to 28. Now, as I talk about this, I want to make sure I commend my beautiful wife. I love being married. Last time I preached this at the church, Maddie kind of came away going, do you like being married? I do. I love being married. But for the purpose of this point, I'm going to talk about the hardships of marriage. Verse 25 to 28. Now, concerning the betrothed, the engaged, I have no command from the Lord. That means he doesn't have a saying from Jesus. But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. We'll trust you, Paul. I think that in view of the present distress, that is, in the last days as we wait Christ to return, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Well, do not seek to be free. Like, don't get divorced. Are you free from a wife? Well, don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, okay, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet, those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. Those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I will spare you that. By worldly, he doesn't mean sinful. He just means earthly. 
things of this earth, the, 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 the life of a married family. There are many wonderful benefits of marriage. We could talk about them lots, and we always do. But we must remember it's no fairy tale. Marriage is a covenant entered into before God and man for life in sickness and in health, in poverty and in riches, when things are good and when things are terrible. It's a covenant, not a contract. There's a reason why divorce rates are so high. Marriage is hard. Paul Tripp has a great book called When Sinners Say I Do. And the result is when you put one sinner with another sinner, it's not like, whoa, now that's really great. It's like, oh, okay, we've got sparks here. And not those other sparks. (laughs) Although hopefully that is a lot there too. Now, the other reality is in marriage, once you enter this covenant, you, you, you may marry someone And over the course of their life, they may become disabled. But you're in covenant. And that's going to bring worldly trouble. They may cheat on you. Or you may just fight and fight and fight and grow to hate each other. But now you've got kids and a mortgage and you're stuck or you're... Perhaps maybe in a marriage, this can happen. A spouse can pretend to be one thing and then become something else over time. Spouses walk away from Christ. There's some of the troubles, not to mention all the worldly, everyday troubles of running a home and a family and a married life and in-laws and all of that. And Sam Albury, who is a single celibate man who actually struggles with same-sex attraction, so he's committed to singleness for his life unless his desires change, he says this, The fact is, both singleness and marriage have their own particular ups and downs. The temptation for many who are single is to compare the downs of singleness with the ups of marriage. And the temptation for some married people is to compare the downs of marriage with the ups of singleness, which is equally dangerous. The grass will often seem greener on the other side. Whichever gift we have, marriage or singleness, the other can easily seem far more attractive. Our common assumption, marriage is better or easier, is simply not true. And then listen to this. Seeing what I have seen in the last decade or so, I have to say I would choose the lows of singleness over the lows of marriage any day of the week. I think being unhappily married must be so much harder than being unhappily single. So the first reason why the gift um, singleness is a gift is it's negatively, it spares you from the hardship and the worldly trouble of marriage. Now, you are welcome to the trouble if you desire marriage, but Paul's saying, I, I would spare you that. But then let's think about the positive, the flip side. Secondly, the gift of singleness provides you with glorious opportunities. Look at verse 32 to 35. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or betrothed is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Now I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and 
to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. To secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. The gift of singleness provides you a glorious opportunity. Undivided devotion to the Lord. You are freed up to be anxious about the Lord's affairs in a way that marriage people cannot experience. This was Paul's life and experience. He knows it firsthand. His singleness enabled him to do what we all desire to do. If we have the Holy Spirit, you want to serve Jesus with all your life. You want to give him all your time, all your energy. You want to live for him. You want to glorify him. You want to be able to go where you need to go. You want to be able to speak to who you need to be able to speak to. And Paul was able to live that out because he had the gift of singleness, unencumbered by the demands of family life. There is a certain level of world-based distraction that goes hand-in-hand with marriage. Now, certainly, all singles also have many world-based distractions and duties. Singles have bills to pay, houses to clean, jobs to work. But there is a complexity and a craziness that goes along with married life and a certain set of duties and responsibilities that can't be put on hold that demands many, many hours a day that by necessity divide a married person's devotion. Sam Albury again says, Paul is not saying that married people have concerns and single people don't, but those concerns are necessarily different. He goes on to say, he quotes his friend Vaughan Roberts, who says, we single people are pulled in fewer directions than those who are married and are therefore free to give more time to the Lord's affairs. So singles, this is your unique gift and calling from God. It is the unique gift of your status that God wants you to receive and embrace. You are more free to serve the Lord with all you have. What a wonderful, wonderful gift and a wonderful way of reshaping what singleness actually is designed for. It actually challenged me as I studied this because as you know, I've got four children, Evie, Jasper, Judah, Zoe, and my vision for their life is for them to be married. I want them to be married. I love being married. I want them to be married. But as I studied this, I started to have this competing desire that I think this passage wants us to have, which is, oh, but I have a real category that it might be better for them to remain single for the glory of God and the furtherance of his kingdom. So I have a new category, a new freedom, actually. As I look at their lives, less pressure Now, I'm sure this is the case in this church. Uh, It's the same in my church. We have many, many singles who use this gift so well. (laughs) We could do show of hands, but we won't. But who's had their, their, their children babysit by a single in this church? Who's been served by singles in this church? Uh, Singles in this church give generously of their single income to support the work of ministry. The, The singles are using this gift already. And I want to spur you on in this more and more. So if you're single, is this how you view your singleness? As a gift, a divine opportunity to be undivided for the cause of Jesus Christ? Married, is this how you view singleness? It's a gift for your single friends. 
Or are you constantly trying to pair them up with someone else, thinking that they're in the lack? Verse 38, Paul says, So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Singleness is a gift. Finally, I just want to end with a few brief points on application. Point number three, sanctifying singleness. Firstly, if you are single, do all of point two. <laughs> the first point is just, just do that point. That's receive and embrace your gifting. Are you making the most of this time in your life and this status that you have? Or are you wasting it away? Angry with God for the way that he hasn't given you what you wanted. Secondly, I want to say to the singles, it's still good to want and pursue marriage. So just because singleness is a great gift, and Paul says it's even better to remain single than married, it's still good. Like marriage is good. It's a gift from God as well. And so you are welcome to pursue marriage and go after marriage. It's a, you don't have to call it off. It's still on. Uh, but what should you do if you still have these desires? Uh, Marshall Segal, who's a writer on Desiring God, when he was single, wrote this. He said, find a fiancé on the front lines. Instead of making it your mission to get married, Make your mission God's global cause and the advance of the gospel where you are and look for someone pursuing the same. If you're hoping to marry someone who passionately loves Jesus and makes him known, it's probably best to put yourself in a community of people committed to that. So find a fiancé on the front lines. If, if you want to use your gift for God's glory and you still want to get married, then find someone who has the same passion for God's glory as you do. That might mean you have to find some new ways of finding people if there aren't, you know, those kind of people walking into this church and do that with counsel and wisdom. But it's still good to want and pursue marriage. Thirdly, I want to say this, uh, be real. Singleness, even though we're, talk- we're trying to correct the idea that singleness is bad, so I'm overly putting on how good singleness is. Singleness is not easy. Loneliness is real, fear is real, sexual desire is real, hurts are real. And so singles, be real. Don't feel like you have to package up your life and present it free from troubles. Don't feel like because your struggles are different to married and families or because your struggles are because of marriage and families that you can't share them. They're your struggles. And I'm sure all the members of your church love you and actually want to run the race with you with the struggles that you have. But to know them, you have to share them. And so be real. And even if it's hard for the marriage people to hear it, you may need to help them understand the type of struggles you have. And us marrieds, at times we need rebuke because we can get so caught up in, in our world of marriage and family that we forget. So be real. Fourth, marriage, your application is to embrace and keep on embracing the singles in your church family. I asked all the singles to write to me um, in my church just to find out how they're going with it. And in our church, they, and I'm sure it's the same here, they, they actually really did feel like this was something our church did well, and I'm sure that is the case here. 
Uh, but may I encourage you, marrieds, to embrace the singles into your family unit. One family that's done that so well in our church, who used to be in this church with the Beatties, and uh, there was a, a, a single lady, she's no longer single in our church, Anita, and she, she desperately wanted to be married, but was wanting to trust God, so she wasn't going to compromise on her singleness and her sexuality and her ideals for finding a good husband. But the Beatties embraced Anita like she was part of their family. They went on holidays together, uh, so much so that the kids would even say, oh, we hope you do find someone to marry, but actually we don't really want you because we don't want to share you with anyone else. <laughs> Uh, and Anita said, eventually I became needy beady <laughs> and happily became the fifth wheel in their family. Uh, and they were so good at doing it that it was just a beautiful way of expressing um, solidarity and body as Christ. And so marriage, I commend to you, who in your church can you invite into your family life? Who can you love and serve and, and make them a part of the real expression of your family if they, if they want to be a part of that? Let's do it more and more. But finally, the most important application is this. The answer to our problems is not marriage. It's not friendship. It's not family. Whether you're single or married, alone or surrounded, we need Jesus as our dearest and closest friend. Sam Albury says, the key to contentment as a single person is not trying to make singleness into something that will satisfy us. It is to find contentment in Christ as a single person. The key to contentment as a married person is not trying to build a marriage that can make us content. It is to find contentment in Christ as a married person. This is liberating. It means that my contentment is not contingent on my marital status or on the number and depth of my friendships. These are not the most significant determiners, determiners of what will make life ultimately work. And Jesus said it, John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If you make Christ your everything, it won't solve all the problems. But you'll never go hungry or thirsty spiritually again because you have Jesus, single or married, the greatest friend, the greatest partner we could ever have in life. And so Sovereign Grace Barunga, Put all your hope, all your treasure, all your joy in Him and experience the life and eternal life that He offers. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I ask that you would do a miracle in our hearts to help us, whether we're married or single, to find our greatest amount of joy in you and you alone. May we be captivated by one thing, Jesus Christ. May he be our vision. May he be our sweetness. May he be our satisfaction. Help us to humbly receive whatever gift you've given us. As marrieds, the gift of marriage. As singles, the gift of singleness. And I pray, particularly for the singles, Lord, that you would use them for your glory. May they receive and embrace this gift as a gift.
trusting you are sovereign and you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.